Can President Biden bring his agenda back from the brink? The lead starts right now. The president just arrived at the Capitol hoping to convince Democrats to save his agenda instead of killing it. Does the longtime dealmaker still have it in him? And it could be revolutionary. Merck says it is a pill that can cut the risk of hospitalization or death from COVID in half. Plus, it's money meant to help fight the effects of the deadly pandemic. So why is the state with one of the worst COVID rates in the nation trying to spend your money on prisons? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with breaking news in our politics lead. Moments ago, President Joe Biden arriving on Capitol Hill and now meeting with House Democrats, hoping to mend the inner party skirmish with nearly his entire agenda on the verge of collapsing. One member of Democratic leadership, caucus chair Hakeem Jeffries of New York, expressed optimism this afternoon that the delayed infrastructure vote will happen today, and he says it will pass. The speaker has indicated that we're going to vote today. I expect to vote today. And I expect that the bill will pass today. Now, whether or not that happens depends on if progressives in the House Democratic Caucus are happy with the progress made on a separate piece of legislation, the much larger Build Back Better Act, a bill that would expand social safety net programs such as Medicare or child care. We know a compromise has been floated by the White House and by Democratic leaders, a top-line number of $2.1 trillion, but there is no indication yet if moderate Democrats, such as Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who said he wanted $1.5 trillion as a top-line number, whether he is willing to go that high, and if progressives, who have already compromised down to $3.5 trillion, are willing to give any more. So let's get straight to Capitol Hill and CNN's Ryan Nobles just outside the meeting room. Ryan, a lot's riding on this meeting. Yeah, there's no doubt about that, Jake. And the president of the United States came here to the basement of the U.S. Capitol to this room behind me just about 10 minutes ago, and we heard loud cheers and applause from his fellow Democrats as the president attempts to broker some sort of a deal between the progressive and moderate wings of his party with the goal of advancing his massive domestic agenda. The negotiations over two massive spending bills stalled on Capitol Hill, took a turn today with a key player taking an active role in the talks, President Joe Biden. After lawmakers failed to meet Thursday's self-imposed deadline to vote and pass Biden's $1.2 trillion infrastructure plan, House and Senate leaders have been furiously in search of a path forward that both progressive and moderate Democrats can agree upon. We're just going to keep working as hard as we can. We'll see how far we get. I don't believe in arbitrary deadlines. The talks continue, but the desires of both factions remain worlds apart. Progressives contend they won't vote yes until the Senate passes the much broader $3.5 trillion social safety net package first, a process that would take weeks to become a reality. We need a vote. We need to, we need to be real. Are we going to deliver, deliver universal pre-K to this country or not? Are we going to expand health care to our seniors and include vision and dental or not? Still, the White House is hoping enough progressives would soften their stance if they were given an agreement on a plan that all the key players, like moderate Senators Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, as well as progressive lion Bernie Sanders, signed off on. Negotiators offered up a compromise of $2.1 trillion to both sides, but no one appears to be willing to bend. Frustrated moderates are growing annoyed that progressives won't yield. 
There is more than just the Biden agenda on the line. Funding for surface transportation projects across the country has run out, meaning thousands of workers are furloughed until funding is extended. There are 4,000 lives and families, too, that might be furloughed because of us. I mean, come on. Yes, we will have to, but I hope we don't get to that point. I hope we can actually pass this BIF. Lawmakers have a backup plan to push through a more targeted funding bill tonight if talks around the much bigger package falls apart. Amidst all this chaos, the House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, who has navigated choppy legislative waters like this before and continues to promise her troops everything will be all right. So the House Speaker, uh, the House Speaker maintains that they remain on this path, but where that path is heading, we still aren't quite sure. It's important to keep in mind this deadline tonight is self-imposed. These negotiations could continue for some time, and that may be part of what comes out of this meeting with the president. It's also important to keep in mind that some of the key players involved in these negotiations aren't even here in Washington. Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona is back in her home state. Her staff saying that she had a medical procedure to take care of, but that she's in touch with the White House. Jake, without all the key players, even in town, it's hard to imagine that a big breakthrough is in the offing. But that's exactly what President Biden is in search of in this room behind me. All right, CNN's Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill, right outside the room where it happens. Let's discuss. And Jamal, let me start with you. I'm trying to imagine what's going on there. Uh, (laughs) Biden's heart is with the moderates. He wants the infrastructure bill to come up. And he's looking at the progressives who want a deal on the Build Back Better Act. It's not going to be enough, I don't think, for him to say, I give you my word as a Biden, this bill will happen. I don't think that's that's going to be enough for Tlaib and Jayapal and Presley and uh, and the other progressives. Uh, Biden is the guest of honor at this particular dinner party. But remember, the person hosting the party is Nancy Pelosi. And Nancy Pelosi may not be so much in so much in tune with the moderates as she is with the progressives. I mean, what I'm being told by people who have worked for her in the past is this is where her heart is. And this is the moment where Nancy Pelosi kicks in the high gear. Right. She loves this part of the negotiating process. And this is really what she lives for. So just don't count her out. And her her heart might be more with the progressives than it is with the moderates. I don't think she loves having to put, put off a bill no. vote. Two, <laughs> two no, times but the negotiation, though, like, you know, you have let's to do it. wonder the timing of this session. Because you don't send a president up to the Hill to be embarrassed. You have to wonder what they know that we don't know in their vote counting. You think that they... I, I think they're not going to want... This is so an ex- credit. This is an existential... <laughs> oh, look at what he did. This is so amazing. This is an existential moment for this administration, for this agenda. For the Democratic Party. For the Democratic Party, all wrapped into one. So you don't send a president up to talk to a caucus to embarrass himself. And... Um, Unless they're taking a huge risk mm. that I can't imagine. So they must be close to something. Something. Jackie, yeah. um, Congresswoman Jayapal, the head of the Progressive mm-hmm. Caucus, he told, she told reporters this morning that she wished that Biden had gotten involved sooner. Mm-hmm. Do you think that would have made a difference? I don't know. I think it's really, really hard to say. You've heard, you've heard several House Democrats say that, particularly because we're at a point um, in the numbers game that every House Democrat counts. And that is, a, when, you, when it comes to rank and file, that's not normal. Usually there's some, some padding, some, some wiggle room. That's not the case right now. 
But I just I don't know that that would have helped in this particular situation. But he has been talking to Paul. I mean, she told our reporter, Sam Brody, that after she was on Rachel Maddow, basically drawing a line, Biden called her yeah. and said, you're doing a great job. I can't wait to talk to you some more. <laughs> so, I mean, so that, that's Biden charm offensive for sure. But yeah. he, ha- he hasn't been totally absent. But I think for some members, he could have done more. And MK, I mean, this I've, I don't I can't recall a time that the progressive caucus flex their muscles uh, this much. I mean, they basically got the House infrastructure, the bipartisan infrastructure bill was supposed to be on its way to the the president's desk in in a way by by now. Last night could not have been Nancy Pelosi's favorite time, right? (laughs) She was supposed to have it in the bag if that's her her great skill. That was the time to have it in the bag. It wasn't in the bag. And the reason it's not in the bag is because, and I appreciate the likes of Sinema and, and Manchin acknowledging this, is because the numbers are truly bonkers. We are talking about even the low scale version would be three trillion ish, right? If you did the 1.5 plus the 1.5 ish, mm-hmm. um, and there are two trillion dollars between the progressives' position and Mansion and Cinema's position. Right. Mansion Cinema and the moderates did the hard part. They got it through the Senate with 67 votes. They're they're part of this. The squad over here is just like nah, nah, and they say. To hell with your bipartisan infrastructure, which I'm kind of surprised they've hung on this long. But the fact is, $2 trillion is a large gap to close. Maybe that's the only leverage they have, right? But they they only have leverage if that bill is not passed yet. Yeah, but I also but I also predicted earlier, and I was wrong, that they weren't going to say no to something with that sweet, sweet trillion behind it. Let's, just think, about, let's think about where we were a week ago, which is that we did not have a number. This was an artificial deadline Nancy Pelosi put in place with the moderates. In the course of the last few days, she now has a number on the table. They're actually now in the middle of figuring out what this thing is. So it could be possible that the, the, the momentum of the last couple of days is right. what will take them into the final deal. Not entirely uh, an artificial deadline, because you just heard Congressman Dean Phillips there of Minnesota, uh, say that he called it BIF, by the way, and that stands for bipartisan infrastructure. Uh, but in any case, he just he just said there is a chance that if infrastructure doesn't pass, 4,200 employees of the Department of Transportation who don't get the funding to come in are going to have to be furloughed. Uh, and so, I mean, if that were to happen and then all of a sudden you have local news teams and CNN and others yeah profiling these people who don't have paychecks coming in because the Democrats can't get their act together and pass legislation that is assured passage in the Senate, that's not going to be good. Right. And they all know how <laughs> foolish that would look. And they could pass yes, a little stopgap and fix that for, for a moment. I mean, I don't think it has escaped anyone that this looks completely irrational, that they would vote against a bill that they like, that the public has a 70 percent approval for, which is the infrastructure bill, and that they wouldn't take less on the larger package because they never had anything that big before. And it was interesting to hear Bernie Sanders the other day rail against this, um, but he's never had anything this big before either. And he's the chairman of the committee. And I'm wondering whether how many ways there are to skin the cat on that difference that you talk about. But I think one of the problems is rhetorically progressives have made the 1.5 trillion, if that's all that passes at first, a losing prospect for them, even though it's... If, Very popular the, and, and bipartisan the big, and large. Build Back Better Act. Right. In the big back. It's a loser today. We'll see where they are next yeah. year with the running TV ads. I was just told, <laughs> that, I was just told it was 3,700, not 4,200 uh, Department of Transportation employees. Uh, MK, I want to get your perspective on this. Last night, moderate Democrat from New Jersey Congressman Josh Gottheimer, who has been really one of the ones pushing we need a, a vote on infrastructure as soon as possible, he said he was 100%, one, I'm sorry, 1,000% sure there would be a vote last night. 
Obviously, that did not happen. And progressive Congresswoman Ilhan Omar tweeted in Congress, we don't make predictions like this until we know we have the votes. Some of us get this, others bluff and fall on their face. Hopefully, at Josh Gottheimer and the other 4% of Democrats will not obstruct but negotiate and help us get POTUS's agenda done for the people. I mean, that is a flex. Yeah. That is a flex. The progressives are like, we know what's going on here, and you don't, moderates. Right, well, and 1,000% is that sort of Washington math perfection. (laughs) Um, There's more than exists in 100. But look, I I do think rhetorically, progressives have not backed off at all uh, today or yesterday, really. And then cinema leaves town, which seems to send a message that this faction over here, at least her part of it, is not backing down either. So I do not know how that comes together tonight. But does that, but the, but, but the, the, um, you know, the 4% kind of being, dismissing them like that, you're not in the majority right. without that 4%. And there's a reason that they're pushing back on some of these numbers because they don't think they can run, go back home and run on this. And there's a disagreement whether, you know, if they don't pass Build Back Better, whether the highway um, funding will be enough to run on. That is a 2020, uh, 2022 more, conversation. That, what, but. But, yeah. sorry, no, no. Uh, th- there's one other piece here, which is that the Congressional Black Caucus right now is looking at this, and they're not thinking about Joe Manchin. They're thinking about Raphael Warnock. Mm-hmm. And Raphael Warnock yeah. needs this bill to run on in Georgia. I saw a poll yesterday from Terrence Woodburn at Hit Strategies that 70-something percent of African-American voters would prefer the, B- the BBB bill, the Build Back Better bill, over the infrastructure bill. Right, So there is a dissonance here between maybe what's happening in West Virginia with the coal miners and what's happening in Georgia with black citizens inside of Atlanta. I just want to touch on something Jackie just said, because I think it's significant, because Nancy Pelosi used to refer to them as the majority makers, which were the moderate Democrats from swing districts that made her the House Speaker, uh, like Jason Altmyer from Western Pennsylvania. Joe Manchin does not get replaced by a more liberal Democrat, mm-hmm. right? No. Uh, I, who knows about Arizona? Uh, I find it hard to imagine that, that the same happens with cinema. But still, especially with Joe Manchin, if Joe Manchin, conservative Democrat, moderate Democrat, were not there, then the Democrats would not be in control of the Senate. None that's, of this debate would even be happening. That's right. That's right. But they still hate him. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that's true so for Raphael Warnock, too. Yeah. If Raphael Warnock is not there in two years, they don't get to be a majority. Right. Well, that's right. It's also, there's a fundamental question and difference between these two factions in the party over whether the $3.5 trillion is existential which way. As you're pointing out, in Georgia, it might work out well for you. In West Virginia, other places, not so much. Which is why the erosion of trust is so problematic inside the Democratic caucus It's right pretty. Now. It's pretty Back. grim. Thanks. <laughs> one and all, appreciate it. Have a wonderful weekend. Coming up, one massive state is planning to require all eligible students, all, to get the COVID vaccine to come to the classroom. Plus, one governor now trying to use badly needed COVID relief funds for, well... Another purpose, we'll explain next. Topping our health lead now, Governor Gavin Newsom of California announced today that the nation's most populous state will become the very first to require, require a COVID vaccine for eligible K-12 students if they want to attend school in person. This as the drug company Merck announces a new antiviral medicine to treat COVID. CNN's Jason Carroll reports for us now. Public health officials say the Merck treatment is not actually the best way to battle the virus. 
It could be a game changer in the battle against COVID-19. The pharmaceutical company Merck says it has developed a pill that interim results from one trial show cuts the risk of hospitalization and death in half if you get infected. If authorized by the FDA, it would become the first antiviral pill to treat COVID-19. The way it would work is if you start having symptoms and, and, you have, and you're identified as having covid then you could take the pill and it'll reduce your risk of hospitalization and, and potentially death. But as I say, it's reduced. This is nothing nearly as powerful as getting a vaccine. Merck says it will seek emergency use authorization as soon as possible. The development was welcome news at today's White House COVID-19 briefing, where medical experts cautioned the pill would not be a stand-in for getting vaccinated. If approved, the right way to think about this is this is uh, a potential additional tool in our toolbox to protect people from the worst outcomes of COVID. But I think it's really important to remember that vaccination, as we've talked about today, remains far and away our best tool against COVID-19. The battle over vaccine mandates is about to shift to California, which just became the first state in the country that will require all eligible public and private school students to be vaccinated to attend in person. I want to get this behind us, get this economy moving again, make sure our kids never have to worry about getting a call saying they can't go to school the next day because one of the kids or a staff member were tested positive. The new rule will be phased in by grades once the FDA grants full approval of the vaccine for kids 12 and older. On the other side of the country, another deadline looms over vaccine mandates for teachers in New York City. The city's public schools employees have until 5 o'clock today to have at least one shot or risk being forced on unpaid leave come Monday. This after a group of employees filed an emergency petition with the U.S. Supreme Court asking it to put a stop to the mayor's vaccine mandate. New York's mayor says 90 percent of the city's Department of Education employees have gotten at least one dose. This teacher says she is ready to be fired rather than get vaccinated. I'm going to be terminated. It's going to be my last day. But the school's chancellor says they have enough substitute teachers to cover for the unvaccinated. And Jake, the FDA also announced that its advisory committee is going to be meeting to discuss uh, booster uh, data that's surrounding both the Moderna and the J&J vaccine. Uh, those meetings are expected to take place on October 14th and October 15th. To date, the FDA has only approved booster shots for the Pfizer vaccine, and that's only for certain adults. All right, Jake. Jason. Jason Carroll in New York, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now, CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. He is author of the new book, comes out next week, World War C, Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic and How to Prepare for the Next One. And I can't wait to talk to you about that book next week. But until then, let us talk about today's news. Can you explain in layman's terms how exactly this new possible pill from Merck, how it fights COVID? Yeah, sure. You know, let me preface by saying that bacteria and viruses are different. Uh, Viruses need to replicate within a human cell whereas bacteria don't, which is why antibiotics are easier to develop for bacteria than antivirals. We don't really hear much about antivirals. The way this works is as the virus is replicating, it's basically using different building blocks to make new viruses. What this drug does essentially acts like one of those building blocks, like a Trojan horse or a a wolf in sheep's clothing, Jake. And then the virus starts to build with this this, uh, abnormal building block and it messes up the replication process. 
so the virus can't replicate that much anymore. That's basically what it does. Now, two things to keep in mind. Based on what I just told you, you'd understand why you need to give this drug early. You want to stop replication early. If it replicates a lot, then the virus is already out there quite a bit in the body. The second thing is this virus, SARS, you know, this, this COVID virus is tricky. It has a proofreading mechanism, which is really like a very sophisticated thing. And it can usually figure out when something's awry. This particular drug seems to bypass that proofreading mechanism as well, which is what seems to make it so effective. Hmm. Now, if the FDA were to authorize this new drug from Merck, it could change outcomes for a lot of people. Um, but the White House today, they're begging people, don't rely on this. You still need to get the vaccine. Take a listen. It can prevent you from getting COVID in the first place. And we want to prevent infections, not just wait to treat them once they happen. The White House seems to be concerned that the news of this pill to treat COVID uh, might dissuade people from getting the vaccine to prevent it in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, uh, that's a legitimate concern. And we see that with flu as well. You know, even pre-pandemic, only about half the country would get a flu shot every year. Tamiflu was something that uh, is not nearly as effective potentially as what we're talking about here. But people would often rely on, on that sort of thing. I mean, I want to show you what the trial has shown so far, according to the company. And we've only heard from the company so far. So the FDA has got to give this a very thorough review. But basically, when you do all the math here and you realize that the, the people who got the pill, the, the five days of pills, two, days, uh, two pills a day, that it was basically 7% of people who, who received the medication were hospitalized versus about 14% who didn't receive the medication that either were hospitalized or died. So 50% uh, is, is that's where they get the 50% number. But in terms of the overall efficacy, keep in mind, the vast majority of people who get COVID still aren't going to the hospital. In this trial, it was about 14% of people who went to the hospital or died. This cut that in half. So it's significant, but without a doubt, it's so much better to, to obviously prevent the disease from happening in the first place. And Jake, again, as you and I've talked about from very early days, it's not just about life and death. There's a lot about this virus we still don't understand, including these long-hauling symptoms. It's still very perplexing, some of, some of what we're learning about this. And Sanjay, one detail jumped out at me from the Merck press release. The, the company says it consulted with the FDA as well as with the independent committee that looks at the data. And Merck has decided they're going to stop recruiting new patients into its study, quote, due to these positive results, unquote. Did, did they stop, stop their study early? How unusual is that? Uh, it, it's unusual, but it's, it's not, not unheard of. You, you typically have studies stopped because it's pretty clear the thing is not working, and it's just futile to keep going with the study that, where it's clear there's no real positive outcomes. So this is a, it's a real show of faith. If these independent uh, you know, boards come in and say, hey, look, this looks so good, we shouldn't continue with the study anymore. We should basically put this now through the FDA process. It's still got to go through quite a bit of process, including a real rigorous safety sort of uh, evaluation. Those are going to be some good questions, important questions that come up. But it was a very positive sign, Jake. There's currently only one antiviral drug approved to treat COVID as of right now in the United States, remdesivir. How is this new one from Merck different? I think one of the biggest things is that remdesivir is an, an IV, whereas this is oral. I mean, taking two pills a day for five days, you can do this at home. You can do this in many places around the world. When it comes to some of these medications like remdesivir and even monoclonal antibodies, 
they're not really available in many places around the world because they require you to, to get the, the infusion. So I think the access is one of the, the, biggest, the biggest differences here. If you look at the data on remdesivir as well, uh, it's not didn't look as promising as what we're seeing here. Remdesivir, it wasn't clear that it actually prevented death. It may have prevented severe illness and likelihood of hospitalization, but it wasn't clear that it actually prevented people from dying. Dr. Gupta's new book is World War C, Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic and How to Prepare for the Next One. It comes out Tuesday. We'll talk to him about it then. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Good to see you. Have a great weekend. You too, Jake. Thank you. Clean up. The vice president's office trying to contain the outrage over a smear of Israel that the vice president did not correct. Now detractors say it's more proof she might not be ready for the number one job. Stay with us. Some breaking news for you now. The White House is confirming that President Biden's meeting with Democratic lawmakers just ended. He arrived right before 4 p.m. Eastern to try and smooth tensions between the two sides of the party, moderates and progressives, and figure out how to bridge the chasm between them about the total cost of his agenda and what should pass and when. We will bring more information about that to you when we have it. In our politics lead, however, until then, Frantic damage control by Vice President Kamala Harris's office that points to possibly deeper and more troubling problems for the Democratic Party. On one level, Harris upset supporters of the state of Israel by failing to correct a student who falsely accused the country of genocide in a question to the vice president. Groups such as the Anti-Defamation League argue that allowing smears of this kind to stand is dangerous and can incite violence against Jewish people all over the world. The other and perhaps larger issue for the Democratic Party, as CNN Sunland Sarfati reports, is what this incident might say about Harris's political acumen, given the expectation she will once again run for president. Vice President Kamala Harris is in damage control mode after this exchange with a university student earlier this week. There were funds allocated to continue backing Israel, which hurts my heart because it's an ethnic genocide and the displacement of people. And I think that um, the people have spoken very often in what they do need. And I feel like there's a lack of listening and I just feel like I need to bring this up because it affects my life and people I really care about's lives. Harris responding in part. Glad you did. And again, this is about the fact that your voice, your perspective, your experience, your truth should not be suppressed. And it, and it must be heard. The point that you are making about policy that relates to Middle East policy, foreign policy, we still have healthy debates in our country about what is the right path, and nobody's voice should be suppressed on that. Israeli publications jumped on Harris for not pushing back against the student's characterization of Israel's actions towards Palestinians as ethnic genocide. And sources tell CNN calls came into the White House from several leading Jewish organizations expressing their concern. The vice president's office is now scrambling to minimize the fallout, putting out a statement today saying the vice president strongly disagrees with the student's characterization of Israel, that it was a student who voiced a personal opinion during a political science class, emphasizing the vice president has been unwavering in her commitment to Israel. Harris's senior staff is working the phones, calling several leading pro-Israel organizations to make clear that Harris's silence did not equate agreement with the student's claim of ethnic genocide. There's nothing wrong with criticizing policies of the state of Israel, but it's deeply problematic when you demonize or delegitimize the country 
because we've seen how that kind of slander is used and can spark anti-Semitic incidents here at home. This dust-up is just one in a series for the vice president in her nine months on the job. In June, her first foreign trip completely overshadowed by her blunt delivery of this message to Guatemalan migrants. I want to be clear to folks in this region who are thinking about making that dangerous trek to the United States-Mexico border. Do not come. Do not come. That answer upsetting many, including members of her own party, and calling into question her diplomatic chops. Just days later, Harris causing headlines again by dismissing the criticism that she's never been to the border. We've been to the border. You haven't been to the border. I, and I haven't been to Europe. And I, I, mean, I, don't, I don't understand the point that you're making. There have also been reports about dysfunction and infighting in Harris's office. She's recently brought on two more communications aides to help manage all of this. And back on this most recent dust-up, many of the groups we spoke to today who were concerned about her response to that student, they say they are satisfied by the White House's outreach today. Jake. All right, Sunland Safadi, thanks so much. We have some breaking news for you now. The meeting between President Biden and House Democrats on Capitol Hill has ended, and moments ago, we heard directly from President Biden. Take a listen. Very interesting. CNN's Ryan Nobles is live for us on Capitol Hill right outside the meeting room. Uh, and, and Ryan, you heard the president there saying it's going to happen. We're going to get it done. And it doesn't matter if it's in six minutes, six days or six weeks. We're going to get it done. What are you learning about what President Biden said inside that closed door meeting? Yeah, Jake. And I think what the president said about the timing of all of this happening is so important. And it's echoed by what we're hearing from lawmakers that are exiting the room. Uh, the president making it clear to the, these Democratic members of Congress that he wants to see both pieces of legislation passed, the bipartisan infrastructure bill and that much bigger uh, social safety net package. And he wants to see them passed uh, at the same time. And so that means it's not going to happen today. Uh, you know, the, the House Speaker has not officially pulled uh, this legislation from the floor or officially said that there isn't going to be a vote today. But from what the lawmakers are telling us as they exit this room, uh, the, the president made it clear that he does not need that bipartisan bill passed uh, this week as what, what, as, as what was originally the plan after moderates pushed for that uh, in their negotiations with the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi a, a couple of weeks ago. So that is very significant, Jake. You know, uh, part of why the, everything was so frantic on Capitol Hill all week was because of this self-imposed deadline. Originally, it was Monday, uh, and then it was pushed uh, to Thursday, and now here we are into Friday with no vote being taken. And that's mainly because the votes weren't there to make it happen. Progressives were insistent that they wanted more of a guarantee about that much broader reconciliation piece before they voted on the bipartisan bill. So it seems as though the president came here 
with a clear understanding of the reality of this situation, knowing that he didn't have progressives uh, willing to take that vote without the reconciliation piece, but also from what these lawmakers are telling us as they exit, his own personal desire. It seems very clear that President Biden will not be satisfied with just the infrastructure package. He wants that much broader social safety net, and he made that clear to them in the room here today. Jake. All right, interesting. Ryan Nobles, let's talk about this. And I think one thing that we can clearly say uh, is that this is a victory for the Progressive Caucus, uh, which was saying and has been saying for months, you can't pass infrastructure without passing the larger social safety net bill. And Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, one of the most powerful speakers that we've ever seen in this country said, well, I'm going to put infrastructure on the floor of the House on Monday. That was a commitment she made to moderates. She, that did not happen. Then she said, well, I'm going to put it on the floor Thursday. Uh, not, there not, are not the votes for that. So, I mean, with, without question, I don't know who wins in this other than the progressives showing they really have power here. Which is different. We haven't seen this before where they've actually held their ground. So I, now I think the question is, what number is their floor? Uh, because they they said that they're when it comes to the Build Back Better bill, uh, how they they Manchin has made it clear that he doesn't want to go over 1.5 trillion. They have said that's too low. So now we're in negotiating phase. What's what's it going to take? And I think that's what we're going to be trying to suss out over the next you know six days, six weeks, six whatever. <laughs> and we still don't know. I have to say, we still don't know where Kirsten Cinema, the senator from Arizona, who's the other holdout in the U.S. Senate on this. Manchin has said, I don't think he said, I will not go above 1.5, but he said 1.5 is where I would like right, to be. Right, like, right. He's let some wiggle room. We still don't know where, what Cinema thinks about all this, right. other than we, we hear that she really objects to the corporate tax increases in this bill. Right. I mean, she's talked a lot about taxes. She's not in Washington right now. And, you know, I think what we heard from the president there was his understanding that this is a governing moment for him. And for the Democrats, and if you don't get something done, we're all in a heap of trouble. And, uh, it, you know, it seems to me that there was a little bit of, I wouldn't say anger, but I would say consternation, saying it doesn't matter when we do this. Okay, enough of this phony deadline. Mm-hmm. We just have to get it done, and we're going to get it done. And I think the message is pretty clear. You guys... We have to figure this out because failure is not an option. So, Jamal, just to, one of the things to explain to people at home who are also wondering, well, if it's not ready, why did they bring it to the floor? Right. They didn't bring it to the floor. I mean, they brought it to the floor, rather, to force people to vote for it. Right. Urgency in Washington, D.C. makes people make a decision, makes people make a move. So it's not really quite true, with all due respect to President Biden, whether it happens in six hours, six days, or six weeks uh, it doesn't matter. It does matter. Six weeks, maybe nothing will happen. It does matter. Here's the reason why I think it matters. I think it matters because we all remember the Obamacare experience where both sides got arguing. It looked like a mess. Even though they did a really big, important thing that changed people's lives, people didn't feel that way about it for a long time. And so it had a lot of stink on it. And so the thing you don't want to have happen is have this process end up the same way, where people feel like even though they're getting a lot of good things out of it, it just has a lot of stink on it, and they don't want it. Let me finish with this. Think about this from the progressive side for a second. They're not getting policing reform. We don't have any movement really on voting rights. they got to get something out of the deal. I think that's why they're really digging their heels in here and not letting go. There is no deadline now, which means this will stretch to God knows when. Uh, There's $2 trillion of work to do in between. And there is going to be a stink on it, as there should, because we should talk about what is in $3 trillion worth of stuff. Well, but that's what Joe Biden is going to be doing next week. 
He's going to be going out on the trail, which some criticize Barack Obama for not doing, and trying to sell what is in this package to the American public. So I don't know if he's going to be talking about $2 trillion or $3 trillion, but he's taking it on the road, which you might argue he should have done before. But uh, I think they realize that they have a, a sales job to do with the American public. Yeah. And to MK's point, do you not think that if the focus, let's say by President Biden and, and Vice President Harris and others, is not, let's talk about free daycare, Let's right. talk about senior care. Let's talk about expanding Medicare. Let's talk about uh, all the climate change uh, provisions, et cetera. That that will be more positive for their message than this whole yeah. 3.5 million versus 1.5 yeah, no, million. I think it was a mistake to say 3.5 trillion is the sell, but that was the sell for progressives because big means good. Well, big doesn't mean good to everyone. You actually have to explain what is good in there. And a lot of people think big means bad. Yep. And you will rile up those people as they continue to hear about it. All right. Thanks one and all again. Coming up, more of the breaking news from Capitol Hill. But first, what is the state of Alabama using your money for instead of spending it to help fight the effects of the pandemic? We'll tell you next. Stay with us. some breaking news for you now. Just moments ago, Alabama Governor Kay Ivey, a Republican, just signed legislation into law that would allow the state to use federal COVID relief funds to build new prisons. This is money that the federal government sent to states to help them plug budget shortfalls caused by the pandemic. But in Alabama, one of the hardest hit states with almost 15,000 reported coronavirus deaths, as CNN's Diane Gallagher reports, the governor's idea is being met with a bit of criticism. The state of Alabama planning to use hundreds of millions of dollars in COVID relief funds to build new prisons. We've got an Alabama problem and we're going to give it an Alabama solution. That solution? A roughly $1.3 billion package laid out in a series of bills to build two new prisons while closing or renovating the existing ones. And the majority is paid for in bonds and through the state general fund. But up to $400 million, more than 30% of the total cost, would come from the money issued to Alabama under the American Rescue Plan. It's a move Republicans say is legal under the broad federal guidelines. The only two uh, prohibitions are you cannot uh, spend these funds on a tax cut or, and you can't use the funds to prop up your pension program. But opponents say just because it might be legal doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. We haven't done our due diligence in terms of responding to the COVID crisis. It is, in my view, morally reprehensible for us to even consider using those funds. Alabama is among the states that get more federal funding than they provide in federal taxes. The state currently has the fourth highest COVID death rate in the nation and is in the top 10 when it comes to the COVID case rate per 100,000 people. Our nursing homes need this money. Our rural hospitals especially need this money. And because our rural hospitals are failing, our urban hospitals need this money. We had meetings uh, just yesterday regarding people who still need rent assistance on a massive level. Those funds were earmarked for things like that. The governor's urgency to address the prison problem stemming in part from a lawsuit filed by the Trump Department of Justice last year that alleged conditions and the violence in Alabama's prisons violate the U.S. Constitution. 
This week, New York Congressman Jerry Nadler asked the U.S. Treasury Department to block Alabama from using federal COVID funds to build prisons, writing, quote, the American Rescue Plan is a historic effort to provide urgent assistance in a time of great suffering. It should not be used to worsen our national problem of over-incarceration. Governor Ivey shot back on Twitter, accusing Nadler of overstepping and insisting the funds can be used for, quote, lost revenue. Nothing about this is going to be easy. Now that this is law in the state of Alabama, the question remains on whether the federal government will step in to prevent them from using those COVID relief funds. Republicans have been asked if they have a backup plan just in case they've responded, Jake, that they don't think they're going to need one. All right. Baron Gallagher in Montgomery, Alabama. Thanks so much. President Biden just met with Democrats on Capitol. Has he managed to bridge the chasm between moderates and progressives? We'll talk to one of those Democrats next. Stay with us.